following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Three weeks ago, something unique happened here at Canyon Ridge Church. Now, I'm not just talking about the fact that we had this really cool Saturday night service, and it was the 12th man service, and then the next day the Seahawks, you know, just destroyed the Broncos, and we're world champions, Super Bowl uh, winners. That happened too. But something unique happened here in both the Sunday morning and the Saturday night services. Something unique. Pastor John stood up here on this stage, and he told us something that people don't normally say about themselves. He admitted that he is rich. Now, I've seen a lot of rich people on a lot of stages before. You know, I've been to big concerts. I've been to, you know, uh, conferences with the big names, speakers that come, the best-selling authors, you know. But funny enough, of all the rich people I've seen on all the stages I've seen them on, these people are literally rock stars, right? These people are literally internationally known, best-selling authors. I don't think I've heard any of them say those words before. I am rich. Or even just start talking about that subject. Let me tell you what it's like to be me because I'm so rich. But it happened here. But John didn't stop there. He also went on to suggest that you tell yourself something that people don't normally say about themselves, that you're rich too. Now, that's definitely something most of us don't hear every day. It's something I know I don't tell myself every day, but perhaps it should be if it is indeed true. Now, if you missed this message, as always, I want to encourage you to catch it on the flip side. Catch it after this. Uh, Go to our website, explorecrc.com. You can get the podcast there. You can download it and you can listen to it. It was a great message, a great foundation for what we're going to be talking about today. But let me just repeat a few of those data points and expand on them a little bit to give us a frame of reference once again, as today we're returning to this topic of leveling up in our health, leveling up in our financial health. Because you see, I have good reason And you have good reason to claim that you are rich. All of us are living in what is arguably the richest country in all the world in the richest time in all of history. And there can be no doubt when we compare ourselves to this entire planet that we are abundantly blessed So I did some research this week, and I tried to pull the the latest data from the most credible sources I could find. And and you know what I found? I found that the average, no, the median annual household income in the United States, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, is $53,046. Yes, 46. Not just 53,000. 46. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the median income for a whole household in this country is that. So you say, well, maybe I don't make that much money. No, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your whole household. Everybody combined in your household makes that much. And if that describes your household, guess what? You are the 1.71%. You are the 1.71% richest people 
in the world. You're somewhere in that category. Your household makes more money annually than 98.29% of the world's population. Okay, well, maybe you make a little less. $53,046, that'd be nice. Maybe you make $15,000 less than that. You're at about $38,000 for your household. Fine, you're in the top 4%. Congratulations. In fact, and this astonishes me, okay, maybe you've had a really tough year. It's been hard. You've been out of work. You've been laid off, whatever. And so all you've been able to scrape together is about $500 a month. That's it, $500 a month from, you know, from the unemployment benefits you can get or, you know, from gifts from family who care about you or, or, or from little small odd jobs that you could put together. Not even enough to pay rent anywhere. $500 a month. You're still in the world's top 22%. So, congratulations. Congratulations. If you've always wanted to be rich, chances are... You got there a long time ago, and you never even recognized it. Chances are that you are wealthier right now than most people on this planet will ever be in their entire lifetimes. But you don't feel that way. And even more interesting you wouldn't want other people to see you that way, would you? I mean, think about this. How would you feel? How would your life change if everyone considered you to be wealthy? I mean, maybe we could just put a big sign in your front lawn that says, a rich person lives here, top 2% of the world. Or what about this? Every time one of your friends introduces you to someone new, they say, hey, hey, I'd like you to meet my friend Matt. Uh, you know, he's a great guy. He, he works as a pastor at my church. You know, he kind of does a full-time thing with the military. Oh, yeah. And this guy's family, richer than 99% of the world, huh? <laughs> How would you like your little secret to be known by everyone? I mean, just imagining it makes me uncomfortable. What if everyone thought that I was rich? Because we've got some expectations about rich people, right? Uh, we want to hold them to this higher standard. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones with the power. They're the ones with the influence, and they should be using it the right way. And, and they, meaning not us, right? <laughs> because we don't count ourselves as rich. And so when they, for some reason, when those rich people don't live up to our high standards, well, then we know what to do with them. We turn them into villains. They're no longer people anymore. They're, they're greedy. They're uncaring monsters who are out of touch with the common man and with reality, and they're making their fortunes on the backs of those who are downtrodden and less fortunate. You guys remember the Occupy Wall Street movement? This huge grassroots movement, you know, this series of protests and demonstrations against rich people. Man, the economy was in the toilet. People were losing their jobs, losing their homes. And yet there was still plenty of super rich people out there. Many of them worked on Wall Street where the title came from. But those super rich people just not just doing fine, but getting big bonuses, huge bonuses, while so many in the rest of the country 
suffered. Now, that was all very real. And to make it even worse, some of those super rich people getting the great bonuses are even directly responsible for some of the financial condition this country found itself in in the first place. Rough situation. Now, I don't mention this to go around trying to sort who's to blame for what, because I think there's plenty of blame to go around and all that. But what I want to point out is what happened with the Occupy Wall Street movement, what it turned into, because what happened was, as soon as a certain segment of the population was determined to be rich, you, 1%, there we go, let's divide the line there, you, 1%, you guys are the rich ones. As soon as that happened, two things followed. One, they became the enemy. Two, everyone else considered themselves off the hook and also not rich. I'm sure you've seen the signs. You've heard the slogans, right? We're the 99% because 99% of us are suffering and because of those 1% who are the only ones who are actually rich. That's why I don't want to be known as rich. I don't want to be the enemy. I don't want my life to be, you know, lived under a microscope and have everybody else trying to dictate to me what I should actually spend my money on or how much money I should actually have. You know, it's kind of funny because also the Occupy Wall Street protesters, they didn't want to be known as rich either. How bad would that look, huh? To have a bunch of rich people really upset with a bunch of rich er people for money stuff. How ridiculous would that look? But I'll bet you don't want to be known as rich either. Even and maybe especially if you call yourself a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, maybe you've read some of the stuff that God's word has to say about riches, about the wealthy, about wealth. And you might know that God doesn't always talk about wealth the way you'd like him to. I mean, let's just face it. Jesus comes right out and says it. He says, blessed are the poor. (laughs) But there is no verse where he follows that with blessed are the rich too. No. (laughs) He doesn't say that. And if you just start reading through the book of of Proverbs, for example, you're going to see a whole bunch of stuff that makes you uncomfortable about rich people. Now, you got to understand how Proverbs works. Proverbs is, is God-approved, God-inspired wisdom. It's wisdom, meaning that these are sayings about how life generally works. It's not a book full of promises. So if it says, the rich man does yes this thing, it doesn't mean every rich person always does that thing every day. It means this is how life generally works. But even if you know that you know, Proverbs isn't supposed to be read like a promise, It can still make you pretty uncomfortable when you see what God has to say about how life generally works with the rich. Let's take a look at some passages here. I've got them for you on the screen. Let's start here. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Well, guess I want to be righteous. Okay. Uh, The poor plead for money, but the rich answer harshly. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. And, you know, 
I identify a lot more with pleading for mercy and needing to borrow stuff. So I guess I'm not rich. All right, let's do some more. Uh, the rich are wise in their own eyes. One who is poor and discerning knows how deluded they are, sees how deluded they are. Well, I know a lot of deluded rich people. Guess that makes me the poor one who's a little bit wiser. Uh, let's do one more. Uh, a faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished? I would like to go unpunished. You know, I wanted to be rich. I wanted to be rich before I read that verse, but now I'm not so sure. And we could go on and on because the Bible's just full of these kinds of passages, these warnings to rich people. There are teachings about how there's a proper use of riches, and there's even judgments. There's judgments that come against people who were rich and use their riches wrongly. And there's a great number of these passages that are also in the Bible that tell you, you know, promises for the poor and encouragement for the poor. But biblically speaking, being rich doesn't seem to be so cool. Okay, so at this point, it's fair for you to ask, why is Matt spending so much time on all of this? Right? Are we supposed to be thinking about ourselves as rich or not? Is it good or is it not? How is this train of thought supposed to help me level up in my financial health? And, well, first of all, say, hey, come on, guys. That's a lot of questions at once. Uh, but second, let me say, let me try to answer all those questions that I asked myself. My assumption is this. If you're like me, it's easy for you not just to forget that you're rich or to be unaware that you are rich. I think we do both of those things often enough. But I think what we also do, we also do is that we choose not to see ourselves as rich because we don't want to be responsible for what that would mean. If we were rich, then we would have to be good at being rich. I mean, think about it. Our culture vilifies and judges rich people. And then the scriptures warn them, and they judge a lot of them, and they describe a general pattern of them being almost completely unlikely to serve God. Okay. <laughs> and we look at the culture's view, and there's something to it. I mean, we know there's a lot of rich people that have caused a lot of problems for people that are less rich or poor even, right? There's something to their view. And we look at God's word and we say, well, there's something to that too. It's God's word. It's the wisdom from heaven. And so then we look at ourselves and we look at ourselves and we don't see what the culture sees. I'm not raking in fortunes here. I don't got 58 cars parked in my garage. I'm not laughing my head off when my neighbor's home forecloses. I'm not that rich guy. And we don't see what the scriptures talk about. I'm not a person possessing too much, amassing wealth, oppressing the poor. Come on, that's not me. And so we allow ourselves to come to the conclusion, I don't fit that definition, I don't fit that definition. I'm not rich. I'm not rich. When we hear about Occupy Wall Street, hey, guess what? Those guys will tell us the same thing too. We're in the 99%, right? Not the 1%. When we read about rich and poor people in the Bible, we, we look at them and we say, you know, I do identify with the poor. I do. You know, I have needs. I suffer. I cry out to God. I'm like a poor guy. 
You know, if I had the choice between those two, I think I'm more like the poor guy than the rich guy. So we tell ourselves. So we tell ourselves as we choose to say that we're not rich. Meanwhile, we're denying the plain reality of the wealth that God has already placed in our hands. And if we do that, if we'll choose to see ourselves as not rich when we really are, it distorts our ability to hear from God and to live according to his will. If we're going to do that when God has clearly blessed us abundantly with material wealth, if we're going to do that when we're in the top one, two, three, four, five percent of the world, that is going to distort our ability to hear from God and to live according to his will. Because then all of a sudden, all those teachings, all those warnings, all that wisdom about riches and rich people and wealth, that looks like it only applies to someone else. When in reality, they are precisely some of the most practical words of truth that we need to embrace. Now, I do have a particular teaching in Scripture that I want us to look at this morning, but I just really felt that we had to start here again. We had to start with this question about who is really rich again this morning, because if you heard John speak about it three weeks ago, you know, I hope he erased your awareness, if nothing else. But if you're here hearing it a second time again with me this week, I want to take away your excuses. You shouldn't have any more excuses to choose to see yourself as not rich. If we truly are rich, we've got to start seeing things differently. Bible teachings about rich people can no longer just be about someone else. It means some of us will have to read those scriptures from a brand new perspective. That said... Let's shift gears now. Let's look at a story that Jesus told that has a real call and action in it for people that are willing to admit they are rich. Stories found in the book of Luke, uh, the book of Luke, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 12, and we will start at verse 15. But let me set the stage for you first because I think it's hilarious. It's a hilarious stage. Starts out like a uh, typical day, maybe in Jesus' ministry. He's going out and he's planning on teaching the people about God's will. Uh, and so the crowds are gathering, and the Bible says thousands of people are gathering. This is a big hall, uh, probably outside. But this is a big audience that he has, and it says he starts off by giving some instructions to his disciples. He's kind of saying, you know, some things to them that they need to know before he gets going with the big teaching. But even before he gets a chance to that, some random guy in the audience just shouts out, hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> Smooth, huh? Isn't that awesome? This guy gets the chance to sit at the feet of the Messiah, the Son of God, and listen to the wisdom from heaven. And his first thought is, Finally, God's coming. He's going to set this thing straight, and my brother's going to give me the sheep he owes me. <laughs> how rude is that? How rude is that? And how unplanned of a moment that would have been, and yet Jesus rolls with it, and he's like, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Let me teach you all a lesson about greed. <laughs> and while that would have been probably a bit embarrassing for the guy who shouted that out, we still get a benefit from this teaching today, and we need to hear it. 
So let's jump in at verse 15. It says, Jesus said to them, watch out, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain man, no, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Rich people problems, right? <laughs> then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. It's quite a plan. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all that you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus adds on to that, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves and is not rich toward God. Now, like all parables, Jesus' story is designed to be simple. It's about a rich man who lives a life with a greedy worldview, and he's rebuked by God right before his life is cut short. Lesson here, don't be greedy, right? Pretty simple. But again, whose lesson is it? Because I know I'm tempted to look at this parable, and I see it as, well, it's somebody else's parable. I have never been in a place where I've had so much wealth. I just didn't know what to do with it. But if I get there someday, I promise this is the passage of the Bible I'm going to read. Wrong. Wrong. Whenever Jesus starts talking about the rich, we'd better be paying attention. Because this story is for us. Okay, so let's look a little closer at it then. You'll note that the story starts out with a man already being rich. He's already rich, like many of us here. He doesn't, like, win the lottery and suddenly become instantly rich. He was already rich at the beginning of the story. And then, I love the way the story describes it, the guy doesn't do anything special. He doesn't. It's not his hard work. It's not his intelligence. It's not his business sense that leads to further success. No. Jesus just says, the ground produced an abundant harvest. Another way of looking at that is that God provided this guy everything he had. God provided him some unmerited extra and a lot of it, enough that he couldn't hold it. Now, to the man, this, this was a dream come true. And although he does stop for a brief moment to, you know, ask the question, well, what should I do with this amazing blessing? His answer comes right after, and it's, well, I should obviously use it for my own enjoyment and my comfort. He's going to build bigger barns to store everything, and then he's going to kick back and relax. Basically, for him, this is early retirement. Early retirement. Work's over. Time to live the good life. Now, again, it's easy to say I don't identify with the story. I haven't gotten my, you know, big windfall yet. But, but isn't this rich man just falling right along in with the American dream? Isn't this just the plan that if you go to a financial planner, they're going to try to help you get there? 
Because if you'll sit with a professional financial planner in America, eventually they will get you around to talking about the ultimate goal, financial independence. The end, the dream, the goal for so many is just creating enough wealth, enough interest on that wealth coming in, enough passive income from your investments that eventually you don't even have to work. We could just eat, drink, and be merry. The man in this parable isn't that hard to identify with anymore if we just see he is only pursuing the goal that professional advisors would tell you and I to pursue in this country. And even though God made him rich and God produced the harvest that could have allowed him to retire right away, God was nowhere in this man's financial plans. Nowhere. And so the final assessment of his life is that he was a fool. His riches and his life were wasted. Wasted. But Jesus doesn't stop there. For anybody that's still listening, he adds, that'd be the same thing for you if you were rich in this world, but not rich toward God. Are you rich toward God? That's a pretty incredible phrase, right? Rich toward God. I wouldn't answer that question quickly. Rich toward God? Because he's going to know if I'm not really honest. I mean, I think that we take that phrase and we throw some irony at it that should never be there. Because see, on the one hand, uh, you know, and I've already beaten this point to death a little bit, but we really put a high threshold, a high threshold on what it means or what it would take to call ourselves rich. I will only consider myself rich if I'm raking in $10 million a year or whatever, or if I've got... Five years of security saved up for me so that I know I'm good. That's when I'll say I'm rich. I will say it when I've got that. But on the other hand, if we ever even, you know, listen to this parable and let it confront us in the smallest bit, and we say, oh, I should be rich toward God. Well, then all of a sudden, I think we lower the bar almost to the floor. Uh, Jesus says we should be rich toward God, and well, I am. I go to church like all the time. I pray every day, at least twice a day. And, you know, and my money is involved too. You know, I mean, I give in the offering. It, it happens. I am rich toward God. Okay, so which is it? Is rich a big deal or is rich insignificant? Can't have it both ways. Rich can't mean $10 million a year for me, and rich toward God means, well, I'll give 10 bucks a month, and you know, I, if I ever win an Oscar, I'm going to thank God first. Now, no one really thinks that way, right? Nobody thinks, oh, this is my standard, and this is God's. Nobody thinks that way. At least they wouldn't admit it, and I would hope nobody really does. Let me tell you this. I know, I know that a lot of us live that way. A lot of us are rich. We are. And we think we're being rich when we're really lowering the bar on that definition as low as our consciences will allow it to go. The Bible talks about wealth as a dangerous thing. 
a dangerous thing. And in this story, we see yet another example of how it could ruin someone's life. So I want you to remember that. Make no mistake about it. Remember this phrase, wealth is dangerous. Okay, so what does that mean, though? Uh, Stay away from it, then? Uh, Does it mean wealth is bad? Does it mean that wealth is evil? I think the church as a whole has not done us any favors with the mixed messages that they've preached on wealth. Because on the one hand, some churches preach that God wants everybody to be wealthy. That's his will for you. He wants you to be wealthy. If you're not wealthy now, just start following him. You're going to get wealthy. That's God's will for you. Wealth is great. It's good. It's God's will. And on the other hand, other churches are there saying, God wants you to be poor. God wants you to give away all your wealth. He doesn't want you to have wealth. Wealth is evil. Wealth is bad. Poor people are the ones who you should be striving to be like. And that's a pretty confusing set of messages to us. And so I want us to take just a moment to clarify things here because I don't think either of those is representative of the biblical truth. I mean, despite the harsh words that we see in the Bible connected to wealth, it never describes wealth as evil. It describes it as dangerous. And there's a big difference between danger and evil. Because in general, you could say that all things that are evil are dangerous. Everything evil you participate in is dangerous. Those things pull us away from God. They hurt others. They cause brokenness in relationships and on and on. Evil is always dangerous. However, danger is not always evil. Driving a car is a pretty dangerous thing. Thousands are killed every year doing this activity, but there's nothing inherently wrong with it, especially if we'll do it in a certain way. If we'll wear our seatbelts, if we stop at stop signs and obey the traffic lights, if we obey the posted speed limits... If in this country we drive on the right side of the road, that's a good thing. If we don't go the wrong way down one-way streets, if we drive defensively, meaning that we know that we have a responsibility to pay attention to what others are doing as well as what we're doing, well, driving becomes a lot less dangerous, and it could even be something good. You know, as a matter of fact, I would bet many of you drove yourselves to church this morning. Mind-blowing. But driving is dangerous. It's a dangerous thing, and it's only with a lot of these different safety principles surrounding it that it becomes a lot safer and can be used for good. If you drove here to church this morning, you say, well, that was a good thing. Probably not if you caused seven accidents along the way. I'd probably say you'd be better off staying home. Driving is only good when we have these safety principles around it. And so God's word treats wealth in a similar way. It is dangerous. In fact, I would say, as the Bible describes it, it's a lot more dangerous than driving a car. It could corrupt your focus in life. It could tempt you to trust in it instead of God. It can make you arrogant. It can make getting into God's kingdom less likely than shoving a camel through the eye of a needle. And I didn't make that up. It's dangerous, but it's not evil. 
You know, we looked at select verses from Proverbs. It's the privilege of writing the sermon as I can select what to show you. But there are other verses in Proverbs. There are other verses in Proverbs that actually have to say some good things about wealth. They say that people often get wealthy by pursuing good things, by pursuing wisdom and hard work and honesty. Elsewhere, the Bible is clear that God is actually behind the wealth that so many people may find. So it's dangerous, but it's not evil. And if we'll take certain actions to counteract the danger, then wealth can be a powerful force for good and for blessing others. Most people don't. But if you want to, the Bible doesn't leave you hanging. It doesn't leave you hanging. It's full of instruction for you if you want to counteract that danger. It's full of instruction on the topic of wealth. It's clear. It's challenging. It's revolutionary. And it's not the same thing you'd get in a personal finance class or some other professional resource. But it is the definitive source. If God created and he gave wealth, who could be more qualified than him? to instruct on how to use it. Back to Jesus' parable. He describes a rich man who succumbed to the danger of wealth. The man's problem wasn't that he was rich. It wasn't even that he got filthy rich. Jesus tells us that his problem was that he did not counteract the danger He didn't understand the purpose or the proper use for his wealth. And so, although he was wealthy, he was not rich toward God. Are you? Let me close up this message by offering up two principles that illustrate what being rich toward God looks like. First of all, being rich toward God means that God gets your first and your best. God gets your first and your best. In the parable we read, the man didn't just fail. The rich man, he didn't just fail, but I'd have to call it, yes, I'll use the language, it was an epic fail, an epic fail. Wealth had so consumed his worldview that even though God provided 100% of it, God received zero consideration with what to do with it and zero honor from how it was used. I honestly think most of us would do better. Most of us would do something completely different. I mean, if God dropped a million bucks in our lap tomorrow, most of us would probably think that that would generate some sort of gift of gratitude to God. Something was in order. Something, at least a thank you card to God or something maybe a little more significant than that. I think most of us really, honestly, we would do that. But the question is not whether or not we would do something. The question is, What would God actually want us to do? And he would want your first and your best. Since the earliest days of God's communication with his people, he's laid everything out on the table for us. You know, there's a lot of, you know, amazing mysteries in the Bible. There's a lot of things that we can't understand about God. He's far above us. His mind is greater than ours, etc. A lot of things we don't know about him, but this isn't one of them. (laughs) Since the earliest days... He said, here's how it works. I want an amazing, 
life-changing relationship with you. I want to fill your life with blessings, and I want to give you an eternity full of reward, an eternity full of living with me, an eternity full of riches. But there's one thing he's never offering us. He never has, and he never will, and he's made it clear from the beginning. He's not offering us a relationship where he's second place. He's not offering us third, fourth, 15th, or anything but first place. And he's made it clear from the beginning. If you know your 10 commandments, you'll know the first one, the most important one. You shall have no other gods before me. God's number one rule is that God gets to be number one. And when it came to describing how he wanted people to demonstrate that, he laid it out for them. The system started then, but the principle remains today. Give me the first and give me the best portion of your wealth. Firstborn sons were dedicated to the Lord. Firstborn animals were his. First fruits of every harvest were his. And if you do your reading, if you read the passages that talk about it, it says he didn't just want the first. It wasn't just okay to say, uh, you know, pick something, uh, make sure God gets that, and then we'll use the rest. No, it was not just the first, but the first and the best, the highest quality. See, there's something I think we miss out on or we can miss out on when we think about giving to God. It is really easy to think about giving money to God or giving wealth to God as a financial transaction. You know, uh, there's a, I don't know, some people think there's a debt and I need to pay it. Some people think uh, there's just, you know, there's a need and I need to fill it. Some people need, think there's just, you know, an obligation and I need to give into that. And they think of it just as a financial transaction. That's a poor understanding of what it means to give to God because a more important factor in giving to God is that it is a highly relational event. And so what we might miss out on is the fact that how we give to God tells him who we believe he is. I want you to get that. How we give to God tells him who we believe he is, tells him what role we think he has in our lives, tells him what we believe about our relationship. So if I'm like the rich man in the story, God's blessed me, and then he blesses me some more, and he blesses me some more, and he blesses me 5,000 more times, and I give nothing. The implication is that God is here to serve me. I'm not here to serve God. My giving would say that. Now, if I give something, right, I'm not like that. I'm like maybe most of us. We would give something. But if I give something and it's not my first and my best, well, then the implication is, yes, I do want this relationship with God. I want this relationship with God, but, but here's how I want it. I want it to be one where I'm in control or, or maybe, you know, maybe, yeah, that's a little harsh. Uh, hey, God, you and I, were equals, okay? How about that? That's better, right? Uh, God is a consideration, but he's not a master, or when I give to him my first and my best, it sets a different paradigm altogether. Then when I give, it tells God that he's in the number one spot of this relationship and he's worthy of that position. How I give to God tells him who I believe he is. Now, you want a challenging question? If you don't, close your ears for a second. But if you want a challenging question, Ask yourself this, what does your giving say? The second way we can be rich toward God is almost like a second half 
that completes that first idea. Because being rich toward God starts when we give him our first and our best, and it continues when we honor God with all the rest. Yes, they rhyme. No, it wasn't completely intentional. But yes, I do hope that'll make it easier for you to remember. Okay? Give to God your first and your best and honor God with all the rest. There it is. Honor God. Honor. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. I'll pay you afterwards. Uh, honor God with all the rest. Now, you see, this second principle gets right down into the heart of the matter. Because being rich toward God isn't about figuring out what it's going to take to get God to leave us alone. <laughs> Sometimes I think we feel that way. All right, well, what's it going to take? God, uh, what do I got to give here uh, to convince you that I care about you? Uh, how much cash do I need to part with before I could spend the rest on whatever I please and, you know, not feel guilty about it? That's what I really want and so you got people pursuing a dollar amount or pursuing a percentage that makes them feel like they could check that box, like they've done it. And then they do the rest, whatever they want with the rest of their money. I mean, that'd be like the rich man of this parable saying, great, I've got all these new crops and, and you know, here, God, um, here, here you go. Here's 10%. You happy now? Great. Now I'm still going to go tear down my barns. I'm going to build some bigger ones. I'm going to retire early. I'm going to live for myself. I mean, it's as if one portion of wealth matters to God and the other one doesn't. But the truth is just the opposite. The Bible consistently teaches us something that we won't learn anywhere else. You ready for this? Three words. God owns everything. God owns everything. Were you ever taught that? You won't learn it in school. Most parents don't teach their kids this. And we have a whole system of laws in our country that would say something else. That people and corporations actually own things. But God's word says no. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. And so it's not just talking about, you know, nature. Oh, God has the mountains and the trees and the birds and the people. There's actually one passage of Scripture where God specifically talks about all the money being his. He says, the silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. It's all his. He created it, and he gives you and me the ability to benefit from it. That is God's perspective. We are managing his wealth, his riches. So you and I, we may be rich, but we are rich with his riches. And if we would ever allow that shift to enter our understanding, it makes all the rest of the complexities of financial health so much clearer, so much clearer. Oh, it's not our money. Oh, we feel like it is. We remember working hard for it in jobs that we don't like and dealing with customers who made us feel horrible about ourselves. We earn that money. It's ours. 
It's ours. It's ours. Our souls scream it out. That money is ours. And as long as we listen to that voice, we're at odds with God. We're not in line with him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so the question is, after we've given God the first and the best of what he's placed in our care, how are we honoring him with all that is left? All of it needs to honor him. Generosity honors him. Taking care of needs, taking care of responsibilities honors him. Making wise financial decisions can honor him. And even enjoying the blessings he's given us with humility and gratitude honors him. But there's no part of our wealth that God isn't interested in. Because in truth, it's not our wealth at all. That's a revolutionary idea that would change our understanding of financial health if we would ever let it into our hearts. You and me, pretty sure we're rich. Pretty sure we are. We're rich with God's money and by God's grace. But what I'm not sure of is, will we admit it? But assuming we do, there's still one more important question to answer. Not just are we rich, but are we rich toward God?